0: Amen. Thanks, Joe. We're going to be talking about the Word of God here today, so I'm I'm excited for that, that prayer. Well, if you are new, this is part four of four, uh, and it's so hard to get to part four and to realize there's so much we haven't even touched on yet. I, that's always hard for me. You know, we get into a series, and you realize there's so much we haven't had time to cover. But that's to be expected. Taking on a topic like reconciliation, which is what this... This series has been about taking on a topic like ref- reconciliation. It's like trying to, and do it in four weeks, it's like trying to plant a whole garden in a little coffee cup. You just, you can't. The confines are just too small. And this is a topic that we're going to come back to again and again and again, especially if our culture keeps trending like it's trending towards being more and more divided. Ours is a deeply divided world. And one of the things I think I've said each time I've stepped up in this series is that we live in a culture that appears literally hell-bent on demonizing those that disagree with them. If someone disagrees with you, there's usually an attack that comes your way, and then you feel like you have to retaliate. And so we want to, if our culture continues to go this direction, circle back to this topic of reconciliation again and again as as needed. And one of the reasons why it's so important that we do this and to take our attention um, away from the cues of the culture and to put it on Scripture is that Scripture speaks to these things in a way that is so counter-cultural. You might want to write this down in your notes. Here's where our culture goes very quickly. There will always be a temptation when, to fire back when you're fired upon, isn't that true? Isn't that usually our, our first instinct? When someone comes at us, we usually want to come back at them. And we see it playing out everywhere in our culture. It plays out in Twitter, it plays out in courtrooms, in congested intersections, uh, to the halls of Congress, pretty much everywhere you look, you see this, and it's true not just in our generation. It's true in every generation that's ever been. This is generally how people interact. Last week, we looked at an example from the first century, so way back in the first century, we, we looked at this example a time when Jesus was rejected by the Samaritans. And if you were here, do you remember what James and John, two of Jesus' followers, said that people should do when the Samaritans rejected Jesus? They said we should what? Call down fire from heaven. We're not making this up. It's in the Bible. This is is something that they said we should do. This is the appropriate response from the people of God when they're facing rejection. When they are fired upon, they literally said we should fire back. Now, for the record, I'm probably going to say this about three or four times in this message. For the record, is there any biblical precedence for use of force in some situations? Yes. You can find them. You can find them all over the Bible. There is physical... Biblical precedents for the use of force in certain situations. It's easy to find examples where God used force to fulfill his plans and purposes. But that said, that said may present to you in this series on reconciliation that the sword that governments wield to bring about change in certain situations is not the weapon that God would have us use when the goal is to change a human heart. If that's your goal, and that's what we're talking about, when that's our goal, when our goal is reconciliation, what kind of weapon do you use when you're engaged in that type of confrontation? Well, may I give you one more thing to write down, and then let's start digging into the the scriptures here. Um, There is a big difference between defeating an adversary and winning a new advocate for Christianity. Isn't that true? There's a big difference. If your goal is to defeat an adversary, there's one type of response. If your goal is to help create an advocate, there's a very different type of response. And sometimes there are adversaries who must be defeated. And that's what an army is for. That is why we have police officers. That's why we have courts. And that's why so many of us believe that self-defense is often justified. What? Winning a battle through force almost never results in a changed heart. Isn't that true? If you want to see a changed heart, if reconciliation is your goal, force does not help in that situation. Um, if your goal is to build a bridge rather than blow one up, a different approach is needed. So let me give you a real life example, then we're going to look at a real life example from the scriptures. Real life example that happened uh, not too long ago, happened right out there in the lobby. It was the Sunday right after the Supreme Court made a ruling that said gay marriage is the law of the land. And I found myself pulled into a con- uh, conversation, a very heated conversation, right there in the lobby that very next Sunday. A guy was, was talking very animately, very excitedly towards uh, some people who were on the setup team and speak from our staff and I was brought into the conversation and started talking to this guy. And I'd never met this guy before, um, but he had come for a workout and and wanted to to have this conversation. He looked me in the eye and he said, do you know that there are people, and I'm a part of some of these groups, I'm I'm involved in these circles, do you know that there are people who now that this ruling has been made, there are people who are going to come after you Christians? And these are my words, not his, but this was what the point he was trying to get across. He said, there are people who are going to try to label you as hate groups, and they're going to try to pull your tax-exempt status, and they're going to try to get you kicked out of places like this. Do you know there's people who right now are doing that? But then he said this, and don't miss this. Don't lock into what I was just saying, because that's not my point. And then he said this. He said, "Um, what they're doing isn't right. He said, what they're doing isn't right. He said, I'm a gay man. And let me tell you my story. And he started telling me his story after he realized it was safe to do so. He said, when I was diagnosed with AIDS and I was literally on my deathbed, the people who cared for me were Christians. They were the ones reaching out to me. When the doctor literally gave me a death sentence and I didn't look like I had long to live at all, you know who was there caring for me? It was the Christians. You know who was there praying for me? It was the Christians. When everyone else, walked away do you know who didn't walk away from me it was the christians and that's why i'm here having this conversation with you because i don't think that's right and so i i was thinking about that conversation i was preparing for this week and i was thinking about what we talked about last week right isn't that the example that jesus set for us last week if those of you who are here that was the example that was the leading that was the teaching that he gave us and imagine how different this man's views would have been If those people surrounding him in those circles were saying all these things, here's what we should do, and what if his impression of Christians was very different? What if his impression of Christians were, these are those angry people that are always just heaping judgment and and all this kind of stuff? If that was his paradigm, think how different his response might have been. Will a God-honoring example always change a heart? No, it won't. A God-honoring example won't always change a heart. But guess what? It's our best shot. It's our best shot. A God under example is our best shot if we want to change a heart. And imagine, I've said this so many times, but imagine if every one of us at this church, imagine what would happen if every one of us set the example that Jesus set. Imagine if we're here at this community center and we filled those green Ralph Reader food shelf bins to overflowing every Sunday. What kind of impact might that make? What if, do you know how many complaints they get at the front desk, you know, on an average day? I don't know, I should ask them sometime. But what if on a Sunday, when we literally have about 400 plus coming here, what if none of us were down there making complaints? And what if none of those complaints were about us? And imagine what that would be like week after week after week. And imagine if the parking lots that we came out of We picked up the trash on our way out and on our way back, and they were the cleanest as they were all week. And what if when people came here for birthday parties and to work out and they saw us here, what if they saw this group of people that they do see, what if they saw us serving one another and putting the needs of other people in front of our own? What if that's the example they set? Now, let's tie these together. What if, then, someone sends the letter to say, do you know you have a hate group meeting at your... You're building every Sunday? If we're setting that example, what does the community center do when they get that letter? They're like, what? Who? Who's this hate group you speak of? Right? Right? There are times when God uses conventional warfare to accomplish his purposes. But when God wants to change a heart, which is most of the time, he uses weapons that are very different. And I think about how many churches are in this position where they find themselves, when they disagree with something that happens in the public discourse, they're out in a public place with with their protesting, right? What unique opportunity do we have as this church? We have an opportunity inside the public building to set a very different example. I love this passage. This is one that um, I've, in the past, Spoken of a lot, especially in youth group situations. I love the 2 Corinthians ten four uh, says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. And with the short time that we have here before we move on to a new series, which is next week, let's look at that real-life example that I promised that we looked at from the Scriptures. And there are some things I never noticed before about this. I hope this is a helpful teaching for you as well. We're going to look mostly today at John chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to just open up to John 18 and just keep them there. Um, If you don't have a Bible, let me give you a couple options. We keep stacks of them here each and every week um, at the two tables. They're there for you. Please take a hard copy if you'd like one. It's a gift. We also, in your bulletins, list a, a great free online resource as well. All right. Let me just quickly set this passage up that we're going to look at. This is from John 18. This is happening on the night of Jesus' betrayal. When Jesus was betrayed, right before his crucifixion, uh, this is where this dialogue um, takes place, this event takes place. And today, we're actually going to commemorate the same meal that uh, Jesus had just shared previous to this with his disciples. We're going to do so in the the form of Holy Communion. All right, here we go. John chapter 18, let's start with verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken all these words, and there were all kinds of words there that he spoke, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden. Remember that. There was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, also knew that place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, came with some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. All right, let's dig into this passage, and we're going to look at a couple more passages, too. Jesus faced a lot of opposition. Jesus faced a lot of opposition in his day. And here come his adversaries with the weapons that you'd expect the adversaries to bring. They brought lanterns and torches. And why would they bring lanterns and torches? They also brought swords and and spears. Why would they bring those? Well, because there's usually two things that a person will choose between when they're confronted. It's either fight or what? Flight, and they are ready for both. They've got the torches and the lanterns. If Jesus flees when he's confronted, they can find him. If Jesus and his followers fight back, they've got what? They got their swords and their spears, they've got their weapons. They're ready for the two contingencies that normally happen when you come and confront people. They're ready if they fight, they're ready if they flee. But Jesus catches his enemies completely off guard Because he doesn't do either of those two things. He doesn't do either of those things. Let's keep reading. Let me show you. John 18, starting with verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you've given me, I have lost not one. Now, when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, he knew this night was coming. This night did not catch him by surprise at all. And as we discussed in our Kung Fu Seals series earlier on, he knew this is what a soldier trains for. It's moments like he was going to have here in this garden. This is what you train for. You don't train so you can get better at training. You train so you can get better when you are called upon on the day of battle. And Jesus was engaged in the ultimate battle for the hearts of humanity. He was setting out to reconcile sinful humans with a holy God. And those who opposed him were literally taken back. Literally taken back. When Jesus' response was neither fight nor flight, in fact, if you look at this, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seems like Jesus is starting to de-escalate the situation until his followers decide. We need, Jesus needs some help. Jesus needs some help here. He doesn't have this under control. Then this happens, picking up next verse, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, and he cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What does Peter do? Peter goes for the natural response, just like most of us do, if we're honest, when we're in our own garden moments. And it makes me wonder, what might have happened if Peter would have followed Jesus' lead? We don't know, because Peter didn't follow Jesus' lead. Peter did something very different. He decided, I'm pulling the sword. Peter didn't do what Jesus did. Instead, Peter did one of the two things people normally do when they feel threatened. He fought back. Now, quick side note, quick side note. John's the only one that says, hey, this was Peter. I find that interesting. None of the other Gospels mention the disciple by name who drew the sword. And John does it not once, but twice. I find that interesting. I also find it interesting. John is the only one that mentions a foot race on Sunday morning to the tomb between John and Peter. And guess who won the race? John. Guess who said, Yeah, I won the race. And guess who said that one twice, too? So there may be something going on here, a little conflict within the camp. But that's just something that cracks me up. Swinging a sword at some guy's ear, some guy's head, that's not funny. That is serious business. And Jesus tells Peter, stand down, stand down. And if you're all amped up and you're in fight or flight mode and now fight is off the table, what do you do? You flee. And what did all of the disciples do? They all fled. We only have two responses, fight or flight. Jesus, you just took fight off the table, so I guess what we got to do is flee. And they all flee. And while the disciples are fleeing, does anyone know what Jesus did for Malchus? Because John doesn't say. What did Jesus do? Say it out loud if you know it. He healed him. Now, how do you all know this? Because Luke, the physician, said it. This, I never noticed this before. I never noticed this before because all the Bible sometimes gets all mashed together in my head. There are at least four, well, there's four. There's four accounts of Jesus' life. Four, we call them Gospels. One of them was written by John, the one that we're reading right now. John was there and John doesn't mention. John was right there in the garden. He doesn't mention the healing. Matthew is another person that wrote the account. He was there. He was in the garden. He doesn't mention the healing. Some people believe that Mark was in the garden because of a little clue that he leaves in chapter 14. Mark might have been there. Mark doesn't mention the healing. Luke is the only one who wasn't there. And he mentions the healing. The silence on this is deafening, pun intended. There's no way to know for sure, but we do know that all the disciples ran away. All right, We know they ran away. What if... In their fighting and flighting, Matthew, Mark, and John missed the example that Jesus wanted to set. Now, I'm really into speculation here. What we do know is Luke, the physician, did a careful investigation. And what if when Luke was looking into all that happened that night, what if he interviewed Malchus? And what if he sat him down and what if Malchus said, I got to tell you something. You know what happened that night? When we came at Jesus and his followers came back at us, one of them cut off my ear. And you know what Jesus did? He told them to stand down, and then when they all ran away, he reached out and he healed my ear. Look at this. The only thing that's left is this little scar, and I think he did that on purpose to remind me of that night, as if I needed help remembering this. The night where we came against him, And he was for us. I will never forget that night. Now, that's total speculation. Total speculation. But wouldn't that be in line with the way Jesus acted? And what happens when a person often hits this response that is completely unexpected? I want to encourage you to write this down, if you would, in your notes. The battle for a human heart requires a different kind of weapon. If your goal is to defeat an adversary, that's one type of weapon. Because there's some adversaries, they won't listen. And if your goal is to defeat them, it's force. But if your goal is to influence a human heart, it requires a different kind of weapon. Our natural response to haters is to hate them back or to avoid them altogether, what if in our own garden moments we responded in a more Christ-like way? What if we brought a word from God, which is what Jesus did? And I want to encourage you to write this down in your notes. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword when it's delivered in a God-honoring way. And maybe you've seen or been on the receiving end when it isn't. When someone thinks they're delivering a word from God, but all they're doing is lobbing tear gas at you. You know? But if you bring a word of God in a God honoring way, and that person has ears to hear, it's like this, it, like it's described in Hebrews chapter 4. When you give the word of God in a God honoring way, and they're open to it, The word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if you're not familiar, there's a whole other teaching on this. What is the word of God? The word of God is more than the scriptures. The word of God is any message that God brings. It can take the form of a command. It can take the form of an encouragement. It can be good news or a rebuke. It can be a blessing. It can be a curse. It can come through the Bible, but it can also come through angels. It can come through dreams. It can come through nature. It came through a donkey once in the Old Testament. It can come through circumstances. It can come from a still small voice from within. I officiated a funeral last weekend, And this woman got up during open mic, and she was sharing about how there was a season of her life. She was saying, God, I need a word from you. God, I need a word from you. God, I need a word from you. Send me a sign. Send me a sign. Send me a sign. And some godly woman said something about, God will send you a sign. And she looked up, and there's a literal sign that said, if you're looking for a sign, this is it. And God used that in her life, you know? The word of God can come in so many different ways, but primarily, it comes through you and I. God's people tend to be the delivery system that God wants to use to deliver his words to other people through our example, through our quoting of the Scripture in the right context. And when we do, it pierces the soul. John tells us that Jesus was the Word made flesh. And when Jesus was confronted in the garden, he knew as the Word and through the Word that his only choices weren't fight or flight. Has God ever instructed people to fight? Yes. Has God ever led people to walk away? Yes. But when God desires to change a heart, it will often necessitate a different response. It will necessitate that we stand down instead of retaliating back. But it also requires us to stand strong and to bring that word from God in a God-honoring way. Again, there's a huge difference between someone who possesses true spiritual authority and someone who just throws around Bible verses like tear gas. Jesus possessed true spiritual authority. And the extent of his divine integrity of character goes deeper than we may notice if we take this passage out of context and fail to read what comes before I uh, was convicted of that when I was reading a commentary on this passage by a pastor named N.T. Wright. And he reminded me of this. He said, where was Jesus when the betrayer came looking for him? Where was he in this account? Where was Jesus when his adversaries came looking for him? He was where? In a garden. In a garden. In a garden. Of course he was in a garden. Listen to what N.T. Wright writes, pun intended, N.T. Wright reminds us that John opens his gospel, John when he writes his gospel, he opens it like it's a new Genesis. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was He opens it like a new Genesis. And right here in John, at this pivotal scene in human history, humankind is again in a garden like we were in Genesis. But now everything is upside down. Sin, the the effects that were open when the first Adam opened the door to sin, it so now has completely changed everything. Everything is upside down. In Genesis, humanity sins. And it's God who comes looking for Adam and Eve. Where? In the garden. Jesus never sinned, not once. And yet, sinful humanity now has the audacity to come looking for Jesus. Where? In a garden in a garden. And they're coming to sentence the new Adam who came to restore what the first Adam had broken. And if we had more time, it would be amazing. In fact, I encourage you to do this on your own. Read Genesis 2 and 3. Read these later chapters of John and look at all these messed up parallels. It's just crazy. One of the ones you're going to see is this. If you were to continue reading, you'd find that a human high priest, the man who is supposed to speak God's word, that human high priest judges and condemns the true word who is also our true high priest and mediator. The roles are completely reversed, completely reversed, as they always are when we put ourselves above God's righteous laws and commands, and instructions, and example, and principles. This is beyond messed up. How does Jesus respond? He could have responded by calling in legions of angels to fight back. It wouldn't be much of a fight. He could have gone that route. He could have struck those people with blindness and made an escape. There's biblical principle for that. But instead, Jesus remains with his face set like flint. and He stands strong like the rock that he is. The light of the world stands before those who, in their darkness, have come against him with puny torches and lanterns. He asks them a question. He says, who are you looking for? And when they respond, he says, I am. And again, in context, if you were reading through John, that I am phrase... It's loaded. Look at some of the places where John uses this prior to what we just find here. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And he's linking himself to divinity there. But that's not the only one. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. I am the light of the world. I am the one who bears witness. I am not of this world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way and the truth and the light. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's who he is. That's who he is. Don't you want more of him? Amen. I want more of him. Because we all have those guard moments all the time, don't we? We have them at home when we feel like someone's coming against us or we've been wronged. We have them in the workplace. We have them at school. We have them everywhere we go. Every time someone comes through that red light a little you know, too late, right? We have those moments everywhere we go. And don't you want more of who he is in those moments? When it's insignificant, when it's significant. So instead of us either fighting back or walking away, we can know when God would have us to stand and stand strong. And what that looks like. What does strong look like when it's not wrongly deployed? What does strong look like? What does a word from God delivered in a God honoring way look like? Jesus nailed that every time. Don't you want more of Him in us? We want to give you an opportunity to do that right now with what we call Holy Communion. And trying to get our minds around the sacrament of Holy Communion, that's like trying to plant a garden in a coffee cup, too. When we receive communion, consider this. The elements rec- we receive literally become part of us, part of our physical makeup when we receive these elements. In doing so, we are making tangible the truth that we can receive Christ, that we can be in Christ and Christ is in us. Not only is that a spiritual reality, we're participating in a sacrament that, re- that makes it a physical I need more of who he is. I need more of the word made flesh to overcome my fleshiness because I am way too quick to either fire back or walk away. I need more of the spirit of Christ within me teaching me when do I stand down, when do I stand strong and what does that look like in a garden moment when I'm more apt to follow the example of Peter than I am of Jesus. How many of you are more apt to follow Peter than Jesus, right? Then let's invite right now more of Jesus to come into our lives.